hello and welcome to the Leaders in Clean Tech podcast. Each week, our host, David Hunt, speaks to a leading startup CEO, executive, or thought leader in the clean tech sector. Focused on the clean energy and clean mobility transitions, each guest shares the highs and lows of their clean tech journey, their industry insights, and their vision and hopes for the future. Hello, I'm David Hunt, CEO and founder of Hyperion Executive Search and your host for the Leads in Clean Tech podcast. Uh, with COP26 concluded and not far behind us with uh, many positives, uh, if not quite what we'd all hoped for, we again though heard tales of how many private jets were being flown in and out of the event, just as with Davos and the hypocrisy of Boris Johnson flying home for his tea. Um, our guest today founded and leads a company with a viable solution for those of us who need to want to fly, but also who want to uh, reduce and are conscious of our environmental impacts. I'm joined today on this episode by Stephen Fitzpatrick, a former investment banker turned serial cleantech entrepreneur. Uh, Stephen is the founder of Ovo Energy, the UK's largest independent energy company, supplying British homes with 100% renewable energy, and its energy and EV platform spin-out, Calusa. Today, though, we focus on vertical aerospace, founded by Stephen in 2016, an eVTOL electric aircraft company, which is pioneering electric aviations. The Bristol-based UK company has partnered with Microsoft, Rolls-Royce, Honeywell, GKN, Solvay, and a host of luminaries to build one of the world's most advanced electric VTOLs. Uh, its product, the VAX-4 uh, aircraft, will be capable of speeds of over 200 miles an hour, a range of over 100 miles, near silent when in flight, and importantly, zero operating emissions. Uh, Vertical Aerospace has over 1,350 conditional pre-orders for its aircraft, with a value of over $5.4 billion. Uh, now, due to a bit of a technical error, we lost the, three or four, lost the first three or four minutes of our conversation, uh, which we've been unable to re-record, primarily due to the fact that, as uh, we speak, Stephen is en route to to New York and Wall Street to ring the bell on Vertical Aerospace's listing on the New York Exchange, which happens on the 16th of December, uh, the latest of my guests to be going public. Um, so I hope you enjoy the episode. Forgive the last few minutes, sorry, the first few minutes that we'll miss, but uh, 99% of the conversation is there. It's fascinating. I hope you enjoy it. Okay. So I, I heard Boris Johnson speak a few weeks ago at the UK Global Investment Summit, and he described all the successful investors and entrepreneurs in the room as the cornflakes that managed to make it to the top of the packet. Right. And I think that's it was really amusing, but, you know, a very true reflection. It, I think we take for granted the fact that the people we learn from and the, the, the success stories we hear, they come from people that, as I said, they made it through the early challenges. Yeah. And at the time, you've no way of knowing whether you're going to be amongst the lucky few. So I think entrepreneurship, it, well, it is, just as we were talking about earlier, it, I think entrepreneurship is you know, about good timing and about getting the right people and having the right idea. But, you know, it's, um, there's so many stories of people with the right idea, with the right people and with great timing that, you know, they, they just yeah. come up against an obstacle they couldn't get past and they weren't able to make it to the next. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there's a couple of things that come from that, I guess. One of which, of course, as you say, you know, you look at the numbers from, from any VC and they kind of, you know, one in 10 hit rate from, a, from a, you know, from most startups is shows that the odds are against uh, just even if you've got the right money and good people behind you. Um, but going back to your story, I guess, as you say, really difficult circumstances when you started the business, you know, that element of resilience. But it, there must have been times or 
uh, where I should say you almost felt like giving up or felt like at least that you weren't going to break through and become one of the, uh, the top cornflakes, so to speak. But uh, were there people around you or, or systems around you or how did you pull through and what sort of led you to keep faith, so to speak, and, and really push through? Uh, I think this is where having a, a really clear vision of what success looks like can really help. Um, and, you know, focusing on, you know, having a big enough yeah. goal that's really motivating and it feels ambitious and that feels worth doing. It feels worth overcoming the, the shorter term challenges. Because I think we all have it, whether you're an entrepreneur or, you know, anybody in their career or their lives generally, hmm. there are always good days and bad days. And it's, you know, being able to remember why you're doing it, um, even when it doesn't feel like it's going it's going very well. That's yeah. what helps smooth out the, the bumps in the road. But I, I don't yeah. think it's necessarily just true for entrepreneurs. I think it's true for everyone. Yeah, I think the sense of purpose, and I should say whatever it is that drives you on, whether it's a big goal or your family or whatever the circumstances are, that I should say get you out of bed every morning. Um, uh, clearly from our podcast point of view or from our you know, story point of view, the, the sense of purpose and impact is really what drives a lot of the entrepreneurs and the businesses that we work with. <clears throat> Obviously, Ovo has gone on to be a great success and, and don't really want to dwell on the energy situation at the moment, which is clearly back to, as you say, quite challenging times. But that sense of purpose and scale and disruption must, in my mind at least, sort of driven the, 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 the move into vertical aerospace, you know, an area where, again, it's quite an old uh, sector you know aviation is perhaps not had a huge amount of, of, uh, of uh, disruption or innovation uh in recent years but clearly a massive massive goal to electrify flight a real you know challenge and a real need why did you choose that you could have chosen many other areas. i know you've had clues in between as well but then you know there could have been other areas of electrification of transport or other areas of of, uh, of decarbonization that could have been on your horizon was there a particular reason you chose flight um i think there's there's lots of answers to that question. Um, the the story I've told, uh, which you know, it, it always surprises me the most, is it is true. Uh, I, 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 a lot of your listeners will know. I, I, me and some colleagues, we we ended up buying a Formula One team out of bankruptcy, which is a very unusual start to a decarbonisation <laughs> story. But we, um, I have been a lifelong Formula One fan, and the opportunity came up. We, we purchased the team and it was immediately obvious that we, we needed to think about additional revenues and to, to make the team work. We had amazing technology mm. and engineering and in fact great you know energy efficiency and low carbon engineering in, in, in the hybrid powertrains of the modern Formula One era. Um, but we, we figured that we were too far behind in the electric vehicle space. There were too many participants trying to electrify road cars. And we were looking at other ways to um, deploy F1 technology. And when you think about uh, what you have in motorsport, um, you have real expertise and world-class capabilities in aerodynamics, in lightweight composites and carbon fiber, hybrid powertrains, electrical control yeah. systems, and so on. And it became clear when we started looking at the numbers that the technology we had in F1 was just too sophisticated, too expensive to apply easily to road cars. And that the perfect application for all this technology was the airplanes. And so we started looking at different ways to bring F1 tech into aerospace. And it was on a trip to Sao Paulo, being stuck in traffic, four hours of traffic for five miles uh, on a 10-lane freeway going through the middle of Sao Paulo. And, and when I, I got to the, the circuit, you know, there were just 
so yeah. many helicopters arriving. And I realized this is how people would travel around the world's largest cities in, in, in the years to come. And when we think about large cities in Europe, you know, we think about London, or Paris, and, uh, and so on. But actually, you know, they're tiny compared to yeah. some of the world's largest cities. And traffic is a massive problem. There's not that much space anywhere in the world to build new ground infrastructure. And so I started to think about, could we apply F1 tech to build, you know, cleaner, quieter, uh, what we now call EV tolls, but back then we were, you know, flying yeah. cars or flying taxis. And that was it. That was that was the inspiration. And um, like a lot of uh, entrepreneur stories, you have a personal experience that, you know, you get a, a bit of inspiration. Um, but then after that, it's a question of, you know, going to work through the numbers and doing research and evaluating business plans and, and trying to figure out, you know, do the numbers stack up? As you said, uh, aerospace is a, a sector where I would say there's been huge amounts of innovation, mm. but very little disruption. And, and much like energy, uh, the industry worldwide has been dominated by a relatively small number of very large organizations. Uh, they're very well suited to develop incremental mm. improvements based on mature technologies. But when it comes to a, a real shift in, in technological uh, capabilities or you know new breakthrough technologies like lithium-ion batteries and like electric motors, I think incumbents are very, you know, they really struggle to make that shift. And this is where yeah. new entrants can provide real disruption. And if I look at the aerospace sector today, it's hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars a year globally. And we're we're in a moment now where because of the developments in battery technology and electric motors in the last few years, we're in the most exciting time in aerospace since the yeah. dawn of the jet era. And so it really suits new entrants and new companies. Yeah, there are lots of convergences. Again, just brought to mind as you were talking there in terms of the, the, the catalyst or the germ of the idea. Um, uh, the Masters of Scale podcast is one I, I listen to and I'm reading the book at the moment from Peter Thiel. And again, it's looking at a lot of founder stories and those strange moments that are often kind of can be almost insignificant, i.e. being stuck in traffic where suddenly this germ of an idea or, or a germ of something enormous uh, comes to fruition, which is... Uh, uh, Again, interesting. The big idea doesn't always come from sitting down and thinking big. It, often it comes from uh, happenstance, really. Yeah, but then, you know, the big idea. I hear a lot of, of people tell me that, you know, they'd love to start their own business. They're just mm. waiting for the right idea. And, and uh, I could give you a, a dozen that, <laughs> you know, I've got real confidence in, but I, I, I'm just not going to do anything about it. And ultimately, the idea is, I mean, it's a famous cliche, perhaps, but it's maybe a cliche for a reason. The idea is one yeah. percent, and then then the other ninety nine percent is the execution. So it's having, I would say, you know, having conviction, having confidence in the business plan, and then being willing to to go through the bumps in the road. I think that's definitely that's what makes a, a, a yeah. successful yeah. entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing again, just thinking about uh, convergence of technologies now, and the F1 stuff is really interesting, actually. But again, you go back to whatever it was, 10 now, 10, 11, 12, 13 years when the iPhone came around. It was again a convergence of a number of uh, advances in batteries, in glass, in in software, in data storage, and all these other things, which enabled things to happen. And you're kind of saying at the moment there's a pivot point or, or, or a convergence point where, again, efficiency of motors, quality and energy density of batteries, uh, material science, all these things are converging to enable what it is that you're doing at this time, which perhaps couldn't have been done five, ten years ago. 
you're, you're absolutely right. And it, it's something that I talk about in terms of it, where exciting breakthrough technologies come. And I, I think we're in a world right now where most of the exciting developments in technology are coming at the intersections mm. of different industries rather than at the edge of any one industry. And if you think about we could not design our aircraft uh, in the way that we can today without some of the breakthroughs in computing and, and cloud storage and computational technology that have emerged yeah. in the last five or six years. But we're designing our aircraft in a completely different way than we would have done 10 or 15 years ago with materials that didn't exist 10 years ago, with batteries that didn't exist five years ago. So you're absolutely right. And, and this is where, again, in such a fast-moving technology landscape, there, there really are opportunities for new entrants into you know, emerging sectors because that fast pace of change and intersecting technologies doesn't really suit yeah, incumbents yeah. very well. Yeah, there's, again, I guess that leads on to a couple of things. You, you, you're quite right in terms of that level of disruption and the established companies do find it difficult to, to pivot or to disrupt. But um, one thing that's interesting, certainly from my point of view, being so Im embedded in sort of uh, the people side of growth and businesses and, and, and the talent side of things is it's not always easy to get people from established entities to be able to adapt to the mindset and the disruption required to work in a startup. Have you had sort of, clearly you've got some very, very smart people in the business. I mean, have you had uh, challenges in getting the right people to have faith and to join, you know, a, a scruffy startup, albeit relatively well-funded compared to working for a, you know, a Boeing or a Rolls-Royce or wherever they may have come from? Do you know, actually, I think that's one of the things that surprised me from very early on in, in Vertical's history was our ability to attract incredible talent right from the start. Um, we based the company in Bristol, which is, a, you know, probably Europe's mm -hmm. leading aerospace talent cluster. So no shortage of supply of, of great engineers. Uh, and also, you know, one of the interesting things about designing and, and you know, building aircraft, there's such long product mm -hmm. lead cycles, you know, it takes decades to develop and, and bring to reality a, a new aircraft that it's unusual for engineers and designers to have the opportunity to work on both a whole aircraft system and bring it from the drawing board through yeah. to manufacture. And so we've been able to offer you know, a really exciting career opportunity to hundreds of engineers now in Bristol. And we haven't found there's any problem attracting great talent. And in fact, I would say they're almost mm -hmm. self-selecting. Uh, and the um, engineers and designers that you know that want the the structure and the scale of some of our larger competitors, you know, that obviously the UK is an enormous, it's got an enormous yeah. aerospace industry. So there's lots, there's lots of opportunities for all different types of people and different types of companies. I think getting the, getting a, the, the right pace out of, you know, aerospace engineers in a world where safety and regulation and certification is yeah. you know such a high priority finding the right balance between you know iterating quickly and learning quickly but also respecting all the lessons that have been learned over the last decades to how to build really safe aircraft yeah you know, that is a challenge and uh, and it, that's part of the fun is to try to figure out you know how do we enable um, really fast iteration and, and uh, enable our engineers to move quickly but to do that in a way that is consistent with the very highest standards of safety that yeah. you get in aerospace. Yeah. You touched on something else there in terms of you know we're setting up any form of, of OEM or, or 
technology, which clearly is going to take some time to evolve. It's around, of course, having the people which were touched on, but also you need at times pretty deep pockets. Um, and we've worked with a number of breakthrough energy ventures back to long duration storage companies, for example, where you know the, the, the forward line of product is quite some time away. And you do need to have uh, good levels of financial runway. Um, you obviously had a couple of successful uh, businesses already behind you, but uh, how have you sort of uh, found funding uh, this new project or new opportunity? Well, I think the, the funding for deep tech and especially, you know, long lead cycle uh, pre-revenue, I think we do have a challenge in the UK and lots of people have talked about uh, that already. I don't want to go into that mm -hmm. in too much detail. Um, raising the money in the UK was, was far from straightforward. And of course, we've we've ended up going to New York and listing on the stock market there. Um, it's a bit of a disappointment, I have to say. Uh, we have in the UK some great expertise in some sectors like fintech and biotech, but on the whole, I don't think we've got great scale-up financing um, in, in, in the UK, and, and hopefully that will mm -hmm. change in the years to come. But I'd say you talk about having a good runway. Um, I think there's two parts to that. One is obviously to raise enough capital. The second one is to spend it well and, and not, not have such a high burn rate that you end up constantly needed to yeah. raise more and more money and this was one of the things we did really well in vertical in the early days i think we were really efficient in how we spent our money um we had a really small team they were really hands-on they were you know very entrepreneurial uh, obviously you can't build a a global aerospace company you know on such mm. a tight shoestring but what we were able to do early on was demonstrate some real successes and capabilities attract the right people and then I think eventually you, you've got to have a little bit of faith that the, the capital flows to where yeah. it's best placed. Yeah. So I think electrification of aero, uh, aircraft and air travel is is a huge opportunity. And um, and so I, I don't think so long as we're able to continue demonstrating that success against our milestones, I think, uh, you know, I think we'll be able to attract as much capital as we need. Yeah, no, there's certainly, uh, I should say, capital there. It's not always, I should say, e easy to come by or, or necessarily focused on where you might uh, like it to be, particularly if it's short, the one that's looking for the, uh, the for the resources. It'd be good to share with the audience a little bit more about the specific products and technology. Now, obviously, you know, there are other uh, Velocopter, Lilium, uh, um, uh, and other sort of uh, air taxis. There are people like uh, Aeroavia. I had Val Miftikov on the podcast uh, about a year or so ago looking at, obviously, uh, regional 1620-person uh, fuel cell-powered flight. Um, wh why did you choose air taxis, and how specifically does vertical aerospace, uh, what do you call it, <laughs> VTOL, EVTOL product VTOL. Um, differ, and, and, and how, where are you, are you actually with the development of the product presently? So we are coming towards the end of um, the build phase of our uh, first commercial model. So we've already done, uh, we've built two full-scale prototypes of smaller vehicles that were either technology demonstrators or a, you know, an early concept. Um, we, we decided not to take them through commercialization because the, the, the increase in performance of batteries was such that, you know, what was the best we could do with the available technology in 2018 wasn't the best we could do with what was going to be available in 2022. Right. And and even more so in 2024, uh, 2025, when we're certifying and, and you know, bring it to commercialization. So the underlying technology is improving very quickly. And so then the design needs to iterate to, to keep pace with that. Yeah. Um, 
the the interesting thing about uh, eVTOL is that um, the the use of batteries and electric motors allows us to do some really clever things with the propulsion systems, mm -hmm. so the rotors and the motors and so on. You just uh, perform functions that you just can't do with jet turbine powered aircraft. So um, when I was looking at, we were looking at in the early days, but what kind of electric vehicles would we see in the, in the air, first of all? What I have come to understand is that, you know, to make something work commercially, it's got to fulfill a, a customer need and, and in, in aerospace, you know, efficiency and value for money is something that just in just in the same as energy, it really makes a difference. So mm -hmm. if you develop an electric aircraft that's just more expensive to operate than a jet turbine based aircraft, that's going to be a very niche product. Whereas if you can do something that you cannot do with a with a jet turbine, for example, a take off and uh, uh, land and take off vertically, quietly, uh, and and more safely than, for example, a helicopter, that that's a a service uh, that people are going to be willing to pay for. And there is no jet turbine-based equivalent. I mean, helicopters are wonderful machines, but they're dangerous, they're noisy, they're super expensive. Uh, and so when we looked at the, the operating cost of an EV toll per passenger mile, and it was coming in at less than a dollar per passenger mile, right. it became really obvious that there was going to be almost unlimited demand um, to 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 make journeys like Heathrow to Canary Wharf in 12 minutes for 50 pounds, it's just something that you know if you can build it, there will be a demand for that service all over the world. Yeah. So we we stuck to eVTOL. Of course, I'm I'm a big admirer of uh, of the guys at Zero Avia. They're they're based just around the corner from us actually in in, in Kemble. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, hydrogen is going to play a really exciting role in in the future of aviation. We're doing something slightly differently uh, when it comes to Lilium, Volocopter, and so on. There's a pretty a pretty wide field now in terms of EV toll. I'd say it's narrowing pretty quickly, mm -hmm. uh, and there's a relatively smaller number of companies now that either will attract the right funding or talent to bring products to market. But it, you know, th there's a a real emerging sector here that I think the UK in particular is is well placed to lead on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting. You go back to the point that you know things or the the, the um, contributing technologies are moving so quickly that your own product is iterating incredibly quickly, which again is a challenge. At what point do you have a, an MVP? What, at what point do you have a product to take to market? But but perhaps on the in the particular context of aviation, which clearly, as you've already alluded to, is very and rightly you know safety led and a lot of compliance. How do you um, I, I guess get um, certification uh, when the, the product itself is continually evolving. Perhaps what you have now is not what it looked like six months ago, and will perhaps look differently six months down the line. Well, I think this is this is one of the design challenges that we have. Um, we very deliberately uh, arrived at and kind of at a design freeze at a point where we think we can upgrade this aircraft as, as better motors, better batteries become available, we'll be able to upgrade this particular design far into the future. Mm. So it, it was about building or designing an aircraft with that improvement in energy storage and energy density in mind. Um, and, and so that's that was part of the design thinking you know, right from day one. So we're really delighted with the, the, the design the team has come up with. We've, we're, we said we've been through a lot of wind tunnel testing simulation and so on. It's in the build phase at the moment and we'll be doing a, uh, our test flight campaign starts in Q1. 
Okay, so really soon. And, and at yeah. what point do we hope to have the first you know, commercial viable flights? Yeah, so the program takes us through to the end of 2024. Um, so that's when we are uh, expecting to to get certification. And, and I think it's just a matter of weeks post-certification that we can start to operate passenger services. Um, of course, in aerospace, uh, you know, over the last 100 years, there have always been overruns. So mm -hmm. we, we think between 2024 and 2025, that's the right time frame. So it's between three and four years at this stage. Yeah, yeah. Which is really not far away at all. Um, no, there's a lot of work to do between now and then. But you know, you think we, we need to start thinking about ground infrastructure, about yeah. route planning, around uh, local airspace regulation. So there's, it, you know, three or four years in the context of of all of this work we have to do. It's, you know, we're, we're very busy at the moment. There's a lot going on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And obviously, with any form of electrification or change of transport, infrastructure is really important. We spend a lot of time, of course, talking about EV charging infrastructure for whether they be for vehicles and increasingly for, for heavy-duty vehicles. I noticed that you'd um, had a, an, an agreement or a, a, a sort of a, a partnership with Ferrovial in terms of building vertiports, as you refer to them, um, which clearly you need to have the infrastructure if you're going to start making these flights. How, how did that come about and where, where are we likely to see? I think you mentioned 25... Uh, very port to airports in the first instance where are they likely to be yeah so we've developed a um, partnership with Heathrow to start to explore um, the London and Southwest area in terms of where we'd need to place the infrastructure for Oviel's a big investor yeah there's um, and so we the conversation went from there um, if I look at the benefits that uh, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft can bring uh, we can travel at you know speeds of 200 miles an hour um the range uh, you know on launch will be about 120 miles it'll get better over time but mm. still it's a really useful range and if you think about the cost of developing high-speed rail so hs2 yeah you know the current budget is a hundred billion pounds um we can fly the first leg of that from london to birmingham in in the same you know sub one hour time uh, obviously we're not flying uh, hundreds of people at a time but yeah you don't need to invest in the ground infrastructure and it can be london birmingham london oxford london cambridge london bristol bristol birmingham bristol oxford and so on we can create this great network and then thinking a bit further on i really see in the uk where we have some wonderful cities especially in the north of england and in scotland that are quite poorly served yeah. by ground infrastructure uh we can create great transportation networks between the likes of Manchester and Leeds, Sheffield, Liverpool, Newcastle, Edinburgh, Glasgow, all you know within range of you know one another. Obviously not yeah. Sheffield, Glasgow, but we can create a network um, and really help build connectivity between those cities. And then going a step further, you know the Scottish Highlands and Islands are you know we have dozens of communities that are served by really poor infrastructure and transportation links. And, you know, within range of Fort William, we can reach every single one of the Scottish Western Isles. It is. A, so, sorry, go ahead. Well, if you start to think about that in a global context where you can connect, you know, Greek islands, mm. uh, that Turkey, uh, Istanbul is going to be a really exciting market. 16 million people separated by four miles of water in the Bosphorus. We can start to connect um, communities that are, you know, suffer from poor ground infrastructure. Yeah at a safety level that is you know the same equivalent as commercial airliners and at a cost that most people that live in today's cities can afford so it really will be a transformational technology of course it's going to take some time to really mature 
but it's only three or four years away before we start to see the first vehicles in the sky. Yeah, no, which is fascinating. And being someone who's London born and bred and uh, and obviously often on the, the trip, but live up in Liverpool, for example. So again, I'm consciously aware of, you know, it takes the train to London is a couple of hours, but we'd probably take the same again to, to get to Leeds or York yep. or, or up to Edinburgh, etc. So um, I think certainly... Um, leveling up as the phrase obviously goes in the UK I think it's quite interesting actually that the UK is very very capital city centric you know, we've got offices in Munich but uh, Germany is far more regionally spread in terms of the, the economic benefits but the UK suffers from, from not being so so I can see uh, huge uh, opportunities to, to, to bring a real um, yeah, change of uh, change of society in in these areas through through technology, which is clearly always a good thing to improve uh, society as well as the environment. But um, clearly, a big number of drivers. It's an exciting time, that's yeah. for sure. So one one thing that fascinates me: nobody blinks at the fact you can stick a seventeen year old behind a sports car full of testosterone to to go out and and, and drive around. Nobody flinches at uh, helicopters, which are regularly overhead in most cities and yet you hear both for autonomous vehicles and, in, and obviously I'm sure you hear as well around uh, electric taxis the um, worries or, or, or media hype around you know the, how, how disastrous it all can be and we all know that whilst they're certainly not yet perfect autonomous vehicles are certainly a lot safer than most teenagers in the, behind the wheel um, how, how do you address or how are you planning to address or, uh, or educate people to the safety of, uh, of the technology well I think this is where you know we have always thought of ourselves as an aircraft company first and we have made a real point of hiring very experienced aerospace and aircraft engineers and uh, mostly with aerospace the, the the mindset the attitude is you know you assume everything is going to go wrong and then everybody still survives and that's you know the way there's a reason why uh, air travel is the safest form of travel on mm -hmm. the world by far and it's that in order to get certified in order to be permitted to carry passengers you have to demonstrate a failure rate of one in ten to the minus nine so that's one in a billion times you can have an operating failure and so it's an extremely difficult benchmark not only do you have to operate that you have to prove that that's the safety standard you're operating to so so that's the very first thing we you know we, we accept the the most stringent safety standards there are there are so the caa and the YASA, which is the European yep. equivalent, they have set the highest safety standards, you know, in the world for EV tolls. And in the U.S., the FAA is it's a lower threshold for safety, for now at least. Yeah. And so we're certifying to the highest possible standard. It's the same standard as commercial aviation. Um, we're obviously going to have to do a lot of work to help familiarize the public with these new vehicles. We're going to have to do lots of demonstrations. We're going to need to to go on the road and, and show people. But, you know, I think over time, uh, in my experience, it's hard to rush that process yeah. of, um, you know, the public acceptance. Um, you, you know, People don't change their minds that easily. So we're going to have a lot of work to do, and it, it's going to build over time. And, I, and I, I'm sure there'll be early adopters and there'll be people that, you know, accept the technology later. Um, I think the most important thing is to be able to demonstrate the capabilities of the aircraft, the safety standards that we're adhering to, yeah. and to run the, the company like other aircraft businesses where safety is the first, second, and third priority. Yeah. And it's not about you know proving what we can do. It's not about going faster. It's about working within existing regulations 
but with new technologies. Yeah. Again, it just reminded me of, uh, I, I think it was Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed, was sort of um, looking at the learning and the uh, safety process and protocols within uh, within aviation compared to within uh, the, the medical environment. And it was a fascinating look at just how the systems and processes within the aviation are phenomenally geared towards learning and eradication of any kind of... Uh, uh, safety incident, and as we all know, yeah. the, 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 more often than not, when there is an incident, it's human error or, or, or something else. Um, but yeah, I guess it's important to get those stories out because it's still very easy in a clickbait media to, to, to be sidetracked. And we obviously see that with autonomous vehicles to, to again, just demonstrate and show and perhaps show a bit of patience, maybe, uh, which is frustrating when we're all moving so quickly. With that one, I heard a really interesting talk about the challenges facing autonomous uh, vehicle systems and it was something along the lines of you know if you're in control of a vehicle if you're driving it you're willing to accept a lower or a higher level of risk because we all <laughs> back ourselves yeah. to, to, to perform well when the danger comes whereas if we are being asked to give over control either in terms of public transport or in you know in the case of autonomous vehicles we accept a much higher level of safety than we would if we were in control it's mm. just a human psychology and so i think that's the interesting thing is that autonomous systems don't have to be as safe as human systems they have to be much much safer yeah be accepted and i think we've still got a bit of work to do on that yeah no lots lots going on i think obviously being fascinated to hear a bit about uh, vertical aerospace and, and what's going on is super exciting to think that within a very short period of time that we'll see um uh, the first um you know commercial flights or certainly most demonstration flights and commercial flights not not far behind You've obviously got a foot in the camp over the last few years uh, in both the energy transitions and, of course, the mobility transitions, both of which are at a phenomenal pace. Um, aside from uh, EV tolls, where, where do you see or what's interesting you? Where do you see the biggest challenges and opportunities in the next three to five years in, in the, both the energy and the mobility transitions? Yeah, so again, going back to what we were discussing earlier, I think some of the most exciting opportunities and changes that are coming in in the energy sector are coming uh, at the intersection between energy and other industries or yeah. other technologies. And, you know, we have this enormous challenge of decarbonizing the power sector and generating more and more clean electricity or re renewable and zero carbon electricity. But then we also need to decarbonize our energy applications and in particular heat and transport. Yeah. And so the, the thing that we are very focused on at, at, at OVO and, and our, our technology and software division um, that we developed called Calusa, which is an intelligent energy operating system, is the integration of electric vehicles and electric heat and other applications onto renewable grids. And so if you think through what renewable means, it means you know zero carbon energy, but it's often intermittent or what we call non-dispatchable. We can't yeah. turn it on and off. And so if you've got an increasingly intermittent electricity supply at the same time that you're trying to electrify cars and heat and so on, it's a recipe for disaster unless you apply some intelligence. And so integrating electric vehicles, electric heat, uh, batteries and other storage mechanisms onto you know, low carbon or zero carbon grids, that's a really enormous challenge. And it's going to require intelligence it's going to require digitization it's going to require device integration it's going to require a massive shift in how we manage energy systems yeah and it's going to require you know consumer participation all of these devices are going to be in consumers homes 
it's not going to be that somebody at National Grid can just call up and say, I want everybody to turn their electric vehicles off, or I want them to turn and charge, them, you know, plug them all in. Yeah. So there's there's a massive shift coming in in, in how we design the whole system, um, and a lot of work to do to make the change. Yeah. No. As you say, I think what, in fact one of the things, I've, I've, and again, it's kind of a bit of a cliche that you know the EV or electric vehicle is the gateway drug for a lot of people into acknowledging or understanding or having a greater concept around energy. I actually started the solar business back in 2007, and it was amazing when people had solar on the roof, which were again early adopters back then. It was very expensive, but how it just changed their whole mindset around where energy comes from and how they utilize it and when they should turn stuff on and off. It, uh, again, I think the electric vehicle as it is scaling quite rapidly is bringing that mindset to people that you, you can en masse have an impact personally on, on you know, broad, yeah. broader issues or broader capabilities of the grid, for example. Yeah, well, I think it's just, you know, part of a bigger trend where I think there is more and more um, personal recognition that we each have our own part to play in decarbonization or addressing climate change and it is the it's the total of a, you know, millions and millions of individual decisions that will make the difference yeah. there's only so much that sweeping government policy can do um, and so th this is an exciting time you know they're, 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 it's an exciting time you know, for entrepreneurs and for investors in this sector um, and, and there's just a lot to do I mean it's the, re the, the decarbonization of the UK residential sector is tens of billions of pounds a year every year for the next decades. Mm. So an enormous opportunity if we can figure out you know, how to make it work for consumers. Yeah, absolutely. And beyond that, of course, we know that the UK housing stock in particular is, is, is quite old and, uh, and, and inefficient. But you know, it's the same across most of Europe and beyond that there's equal sized opportunities we've got to do a lot of work in germany of course and across europe there's equal sized opportunities for entrepreneurs to to, to address these issues right the way across uh, europe and indeed globally um fascinating to talk to this we could go on forever i appreciate you you've got other things to do as well. um i always tend to close out uh with a little bit of going back to your entrepreneurship and what sort of keeps you going and we all know that it's uh, rough going at times you need that resilience we we started on but are there any um places you go to or that started off your inspiration any thought leaders books podcasts any any sort of media any anything that sort of you your go-to place when time's a little bit uh, tough to keep uh, you inspired you know that's an easy one um, <laughs> my children are, are avid technologists and in, in my <laughs> right and they're all delighted about the idea that uh, you know um, their daddy owns a, a, an aircraft company and uh, any time I've ever felt any moment of doubt or you know, <laughs> lack of enthusiasm I, I tried to visualize having to explain to my son <laughs> why, why <we're, laughs> I'm not in the aircraft business anymore. <laughs> so he's uh, my, well, both my sons and my daughter they're, you know they're they're both they're all a source of inspiration and I, and I think going back to the what we started talking about with about purpose um, you know I think the idea of playing a part in decarbonizing flight yeah is really motivating to me it's something I really enjoy traveling I enjoy flying and I, I simply don't think the answer is that we're all going to give that up no. that we're going to stop flying and when I think about the world I want my children to live in I, my son my eldest son wants to be a pilot so I, I feel very motivated to be part of that, you know, finding a solution for that. And I think uh, whether it's good days or bad days, that, that's a big motivator. Yeah. 
Yeah, again, yeah, big uh, driver when you think of, uh, again, a lot of the you know cliches that we don't uh, own the earth, we you know borrow it from our kids kind of thing, but uh, it drives a lot of the people who've been on the podcast and likewise with Three Quids, uh, it uh, inspires you and also humors you. It's quite funny that my daughter was uh, berating my mother-in-law the other day for not having an electric vehicle, which was... Uh, <laughs> that's the, honestly, that is, that's the driving force behind the electric vehicle revolution. <laughs> our children are pushing us into it yeah yeah listen it's been really fascinating uh, to spend some time with you i really appreciate it Stephen. um what we'll do of course on the episode page we'll point to um the vertical aerospace uh, website i know there's lots of uh, content lots of visuals uh, and some videos that they can access and uh, take a look at but um otherwise it's uh, been a pleasure to- uh, talking to you and look forward to uh, taking my first flight hopefully uh, before uh, before my well as long as my kids are still old enough to come and watch him wave me off <laughs> Okay, David, it's been a pleasure. I'll make sure we, we can arrange that. <laughs> Many thanks. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Hello and thanks very much for joining us on the Leading Clean Tech podcast. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and uh, appreciate you joining us again. Uh, please do subscribe if you haven't already and please do share uh, any episodes of uh, particular interest within your community. Uh, if you do get an opportunity to write us a review on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice, very much appreciated. Hopefully see you on the next episode.